Welcome to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast, where we look at trends impacting mid-sized companies and the influencers behind their success. I'm Katie Mulligan, Associate Editor of Middle Market Growth Magazine, and I'm here once again with Deborah Cohen, the magazine's Editor-in-Chief. Deb, who'd you talk to for the podcast this week? Katie, I talked to Neil Levine. Um, He's the Senior Vice President of Government Affairs at LiveWell Enlightened Health. It's a vertically integrated marijuana producer and distributor based in Denver. It seems like an interesting time to be speaking with someone like Neil just as drugs are top of mind in the context of the opioid crisis and then uh, with tax reform conversations going on right now in Washington. Um, it seems like taxes is, is one of the major challenges that, that marijuana companies are facing right now. Indeed, I think um, the tax issue, and there's a provision of the current tax code known as 280E, which makes it uh, very difficult for businesses like live well to take uh, deductions that other businesses would. Because marijuana is a class one scheduled drug, which puts it up there with hardcore street drugs like heroin, uh, the federal government treats the business a lot differently. And even though um, we're seeing a lot of states, 29 right now, 29 states have some form of legalization for marijuana, whether it's recreational or medical, the, government, the federal government continues to prohibit marijuana sales, and that's putting companies like LiveWell in a tough spot. And a lot of these issues were, were touched on in our, our cover profile of LiveWell in our, the fall issue of Middle Market Growth magazine, but I'm looking forward to hearing uh, a little bit more background from Neil, particularly on some of these regulatory issues and, and, and tax concerns. So let's get into it. Here is Deb speaking with Neil Levine of LiveWell. Neil, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Could you talk about LiveWell and the business model and just where the general growth from from the business is coming from right now? Sure, sure. Uh, So as you said, we are a fully vertically integrated touch-the-plant cannabis company. Uh, we are located, we are headquartered in Denver, Colorado. We are, we have 14 retail locations throughout the state of Colorado. We're about to open our first retail location outside the state of Colorado in Springfield, Oregon. Um, and really the, the market, uh, in, in Colorado has been growing roughly 25 to 30%, uh, year over year. Um, but unfortunately, and I guess we'll get into this, that, we don't get to actually make any profits from that because while we're collecting an enormous amount of revenue, we have the honor of handing all that to the IRS because under the federal tax code, we are not allowed to take any standard business deductions outside the true cost of goods, which saddles us with an effective tax rate of about 80%. So while the revenue is growing and we are capturing a lot of market share from the criminal markets, our businesses are actually, we are slightly profitable, but um, we are not the marijuana moguls that people seem to want us to be. Well, how long have you been around? And tell us about the regulatory environment in Colorado. Sure. So LiveWell has been around now. We're one of the oldest companies in the space with a, uh, a grand old age of approaching about eight, nine years. You know, this is a brand new market. We've had rec- legalized rec sales in Colorado mm-hmm. only since January of 2014. So we're at the very, very early stage here of, of starting to come out of prohibition in the states. The regulatory model in Colorado, because this is happening patchwork state to state, 29 states plus D.C. for medical, eight states now plus D.C. for, for adult use, um, 
because it's happening state for state, because the states are the laboratories of democracy, we have a different set of regulations in every state. It's a patchwork of regulation. And so some states are more, a little more business friendly, some are a little less so. In every state, Colorado included, what we have is a very compliant, transparent, highly regulated industry. So uh, the regulations in Colorado are, we've, we've had a great relationship working with our regulators. Um, we have, but, but we, are, we are a very highly regulated business. Um, for example, you know, we have gaming style cameras on every square inch of everything that we own. You cannot enter any one of our establishments if you're not 21 or, or older right, right. with a valid ID. We have like multiple ID checks at every point of the transaction. Uh, edible products must be in 10 milligram segments. They're clearly labeled that they have THC. We can't have any products that might appeal to children and on and on and on and on. There, there are, um, we have, we can't use, there are no federally approved pesticides for the marijuana market because it's a federal thing. So we can't get cannabis approved on the EPA for anything. So, as so everything's organic. Well, so as a company, we've gone completely chemically pesticide-free. Um, our internal standards are higher than organic, but we can never call it organic because that's a federal designation. Interesting. So we are a very regulated industry. We are very transparent. Mm -hmm. We are very compliant. Mm -hmm. And we are trying to build the industry that we want to be a part of. Did the founders of the company choose Colorado because Colorado is sort of at the forefront and obviously um, medical use has been approved there a lot. It wasn't more. nearly that strategic. Okay. So uh, John Lord, uh, the CEO of our company, was the owner of a business that uh, manufactured and sold baby products to Walmart and Toys mm -hmm. R Us. And and so he, he exited the company. That's a highly regulated industry. Very highly regulated industry that, sell, that works on a very, very tight margin, right. which is why we have a business model that actually allows us to be profitable in this really tough environment. I mean, our EBITDA looks great, but what's coming out of the tailpipe is only a couple of uh, 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 percentage points. points. Yeah. So, so John exited the company, and he had an empty warehouse. And Colorado had just passed a law that said if you're in a medical marijuana business, you must sell 70% seventy percent of what you sell, you must grow. So a bunch of folks, a couple of folks at a dispensary came to John and said, can we grow in your mm -hmm. warehouse? Mm -hmm. John said, well, it's legal here now. I don't see why I wouldn't rent it out to them. And he eventually ended up acquiring the company, um, which is how he got into the cannabis business. So it wasn't like, oh, we're getting into the cannabis business and strategically picking right. out a state to go into. Right. It was an empty warehouse at the right place and time. And there's a lot of parallels um, as um, I, I, our author who has profiled your company um, points out in the story that runs in our magazine, there there's some parallels uh, between, you know, trying to get cribs and products like that on the market, which obviously are highly scrutinized by the federal government, yes. to marijuana, which um, is being scrutinized on the state level. Uh, John set up a business model that he, he, he assessed the lay of the land. He saw what our federal tax structure is. He saw that if we couldn't scale and we couldn't run on razor thin margins, there was nothing, there, there was no money to be made in this business. And because of our federal tax structure, not to sound like a broken record, but I will. Um, there is no money to currently really be made in this industry. We're obviously all trying to build 
uh, really strong, compliant, transparent businesses to get to the point where eventually our federal tax situation is fixed, and then we'll be running amazingly great businesses. Because I'll tell you this, um, and it's going a little bit off topic here, but what we're seeing here is that we are having a dramatic impact on shrinking the criminal markets. And prohibition has not. That we've been trying to eradicate marijuana in this country since 1970. So 47 years right. into that experiment, right. let me know how it's going. But <laughs> three years into the experiment in Colorado, right. and we are we are dramatically shrinking their market share. If we can all agree can on... You, can you quantify that a little bit? Well, if we can all agree on one thing. Sure. Marijuana is not going to be eradicated off the face of this earth tomorrow. We've tried. Can't happen, right? So now, someone's going to sell it. And now you have a binary choice. Mm -hmm. It's a drug cartel, or it's us. It's... Folks who are highly regulated, you know who we are, where we are, what's in our product, what we're selling, and who we're selling it to. Or folks you don't know who they are, what they're selling, what's in their product, and they don't care who they sell it to. That's the choice. Right. So what we've seen here, and uh, I can quantify it, the Cowan, Cowan Company came out the Cowan uh, report that showed that it's a relatively, and we've seen this too in Colorado, anecdotally, but we've seen this, it's an inelastic market. We're not creating new cannabis consumers. People who wanted to use cannabis under prohibition used cannabis. That's mm -hmm. why it's so popular. Mm -hmm. We're taking them from the criminal markets. So it, it's, a, it's a relatively inelastic market that we are grabbing that share into a highly regulated market for a substance that's safer than alcohol. Well, it, it's inelastic on the, on the uh, recreational side, but on the um, health side, it's, it's growing market, isn't it? Correct. As more people become aware of the benefits and the, the ailments that um, cannabis is is used to alleviate, uh, there are certainly people who are are yes. There are certainly people who are finding that this is something that works for them, uh, where sometimes other things just don't work. Unfortunately, because of the federal legal situation, there's been a lot of roadblocks and barriers to research that have been put up by this country for decades. Hmm. So we don't fully understand exactly everything that we could derive from this plant yet. Uh, there's a lot of cutting-edge research that's come, starting to come out of Israel now. Um, we're going to see a bunch of research coming out of Canada. Uh, DEA here said they were going to expand the licenses to allow more people to grow to expand research. There's a bill that was just introduced in the Senate, but we haven't moved on that yet. And when you when you take a look at, at the barriers that have been put to research and you take a look at our federal tax structure and the, the, the way that the federal government has been um, potentially interfering with these systems on the state level, because the states are the, right. the laboratories of democracy, the only thing that we're doing is we're not allowing our businesses to grab as much market share from criminals as we possibly can, and we are giving away what should be an American industry to Canada and Germany and Israel and other countries. Mm. You know, we've been on the forefront of this reform, but we're getting leapfrogged now. Canada's going yeah. to full national legalization. They're already exporting into Germany. We can't do any of those things. We can't even cross state lines. So, um, so Neil, talk about LiveWell's capital structure and, and how you've been growing. And I'm curious what the reception of private equity has been. Sure. Um, so we are self-financed. Um, the only investor in the company is our CEO, John Lord. We have no financiers. 
we we are growing by what little profits that we have are reinvesting into the business and investing into our people and it's been tough attracting capital because if you're honest about it there's our EBITDA looks amazing but there's nothing coming out the tailpipe because of 280 in the tax code what kind of effective federal tax rate do so you guys pay we pay an effective tax rate of 80 percent that's unbelievable. Yeah. That's 45% higher than typical American business? Yeah. And so this is how this has happened. And it's, it's, it's almost a series of unfortunate events that are tangentially related. A lot of people don't know this. In 1969, a couple months before the first man walked on the moon, the United States Supreme Court unanimously ruled that marijuana prohibition was unconstitutional. So that got the Nixon administration to start working on creating a constitutionally defensible prohibition scheme, which became the Controlled Substance Act of 1970. Okay. When the Controlled Substance Act of 1970 is created, marijuana is put as Schedule One with a temporary designation. A commission, a hand-picked commission is formed to give the president the data that he's asking for to justify marijuana being a Schedule One controlled substance. Now, Schedule One controlled substances, are narcotics are in that category. It is the most restrictive yes. uh, 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 level uh, in the Controlled Substance Act where um, it may not be prescribed and it is uh, uh, a substance that it says that has no medical value with a high potential, little to no medical value with a high potential for abuse. Okay. Cocaine is Schedule Two. Under federal law, there is no such thing as medical marijuana. There is no such thing as legal marijuana. We are a completely banned controlled mm -hmm. substance under mm -hmm. federal law. Going back to what happened. So now we're there as a temporary designation. The Nixon administration forms a handpicked commission to give them the data to justify we should be in Schedule 1. That's now known as the Schaefer Commission. They come back with findings and say marijuana shouldn't be illegal. And the administration says that's great. They remove the temporary designation. And that's how marijuana becomes a Schedule 1 controlled substance. No scientific basis for wow. it. It was just a political move. Then an industrious drug dealer out of Minneapolis who has a cocaine, methamphetamine, marijuana business files for standard uh, deductions for, for, for on his tax return. Uh, the IRS denies him. He goes to tax court and he wins. This was in the mid-70s. Okay. Uh, a man by the name of Jeffrey Edmondson out of Minneapolis. Okay. Uh, and he, he ended up getting arrested. He went to tax court. He won. So the U.S. Congress in 1982 responds by passing 280E of the tax code, which says if you're trafficking in a Schedule One or Schedule Two controlled substance, which marijuana, methamphetamine, and cocaine are all Schedule One or Schedule Two, and you are trafficking a Schedule One or Schedule Two controlled substance that is illegal under state or federal law, you may not take any standard business deductions mm. outside of the true cost of okay. goods. So we cannot deduct anything outside of the true cost of goods. And we find ourselves under continual IRS audit, random, I'm doing air quotes for random. Right. Um, and and so uh, there's a lot of folks that we know who are being randomly audited in the business in Colorado right now. And what happens is that they are, that we, we are being very conservative in filing our taxes and trying to comply with 280E. And they're still taking issues with some of the things um, that we're claiming. For example, there, there's a statute, I guess, and I don't know exactly what it is, that, that it's illegal to bribe a federal official. Mm -hmm. So they are now saying that our licenses, our licensing fee that we paid to the state are not a true cost of goods sold because under this bribery statute of a public official. So essentially, they're saying that us paying for our licensing fees 
is, is soliciting in some it way. Is some way a bribe of a yeah. public official. Therefore, it is the license that allows us to grow goods is not a true cost of goods sold. What's the federal climate like and how has it changed under the current administration? I know the attorney general had made some statements early on about being more aggressive on this issue. Where do things stand right now? You know, <clears throat> when you see some of these statements that came out, what occurred to us was these folks are not really coming from um, a, a place of knowledge. When, when you hear the things that the attorney general is saying, he's obviously talking about uh, a world before businesses like ours exist, and they just don't understand who we are and what we're doing and how responsible we're being and how we're trying to be good, you know, good upstanding members mm -hmm. of the business community. <clears throat> so what we heard uh, was a lot of misinformation. And so we felt that it was important for us to be here to tell our story. Because at the end of the day, our industry is the real-world personification of federalism, right? These are state-based systems, uh, power that is not reserved to the federal government. The states are laboratories of democracy. This is what this, this is what our system, this is how it's designed, where states can go and opt out of something and try experiments without harming the other states and the rest of the nation. And this experiment seems to be going pretty well with 29 states plus the District of Columbia. So, I mean, but, but you know, as much as we have this state versus Fed, um, you know, conflict right now, yep. the Feds have pretty much been hands-off in terms of allowing states like Colorado to continue with their experiment, as you put it. Are, do, you, do you feel that that's being threatened right now? I mean, is there concern that the Feds are going to start doing raids or... Um, no, I don't. Well, under even under the Cole memo, which is the memo that you know we exist under, that says you know that that's essentially allowing us all all, all to operate. It says in there that nothing in this memo uh, contradicts federal law. So you know they could technically come whenever they want. So I don't want to make some right. statement that sounds too right. safe. But right. um, we are legal, compliant, transparent businesses who are good. Uh, uh, upstanding members of the business community. It does not serve public safety and it does not serve the greater good to come and, and bust our businesses. We are not mm -hmm. the bad guys. We mm -hmm. are the folks who are taking market share from the bad guys. In the state of Colorado alone, our industry had $1.3 billion in revenue last year with $3.1 billion in economic impact. So I think it would be a grave error for the Department of Justice to come after businesses like ours who are regulated, taxed, compliant, upstanding members of the business community. So I, it, it is logical to me that we would be those folks. But, um, you know, yeah. so, so when we hear that, some of that stuff, um, you know, and, and some of the things I think some people slightly overreact to, uh, people got nervous that that Department of Justice was coming in and talking to the states. They okay. came to Colorado. They came to Oregon. That's what we wanted. We want the federal government to talk to our regulators. We want them to interact. They, we want them to know who we are and what we're doing, why we're doing it, and ways that we can be partners. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, our very much cup is half full reaction to this is that the party that is currently in charge of the government has a philosophical foundation in federalism. And our entire industry is a real-world personification of new federalism. Um, and so we've been getting a, a really strong reception uh, here in D.C. And, you know, from the industry side, 
we're not talking about federal legalization. We're not talking about, we're not asking them no. to give us anything. Okay. We are simply saying, hey, we're, 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 these businesses are operating. We're responsible for hundreds of mortgages. We have huge economic positive impact in our state. We're having positive impact with criminal justice across the board. Give us an equitable tax structure to any other industry and allow us to use a bank. Do you have banks and insurance companies that will work with you at we, this point? We do, but we don't have any sort of standard commercial banking. What is your, what's your view of how the industry will change over the next, going into 2018? And, and is there going to be a role for third-party investors? Are you seeing more, more interest? I think that if the, if the Congress... Um, would give us an equitable tax structure to any other industry, which again, we're not asking for anything. We're not asking for special treatment here. Um, and even uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, in his confirmation testimony in the U.S. Senate, uh, he was asked uh, uh, a question uh, about 280E, and he responded, I'm paraphrasing, but he responded, you know, if there's something in the tax code that puts one industry at a competitive disadvantage to another, that's something we have to replace or fix. So this is an outrageous stuff that we're talking about here. Um, and it's really not even about cannabis. It's just we are cannabis businesses, which is why we're being uh, uh, targeted this way. But this is a provision of the tax code that was never meant for businesses like ours. They didn't mm. envision businesses like ours existing when they created it. So um, we're optimistic that that we might be able to get a change here in the tax code, which is this basic fairness. And um, yes, I think that if, if our issues with 280E were solved, that it would definitely open the door to a lot more investment coming into the industry because investors, it's a silly concept, right? Investors want to return on their investment. And while our revenue looks amazing and our EBITDA looks great, there's nothing coming out the tailpipe. Mm -hmm. So 280E is the reason. 280E, is that part of, is it being considered um, in Washington this week? I mean, we're talking about a big transformative week with respect to tax policy, and we're um, today, in fact, uh, waiting for the Republicans to um, unveil their plan for rates and uh, et cetera for different classes of businesses. Is anything on the radar for you guys? Uh, so there is, there, there are two pieces of legislation, one in the Senate, one in the House. Uh, in the House, the lead sponsor of the 280 fix is Republican Carlos Corbello out of South Florida. He sits on the Ways and Means Committee where this is coming out of. The co-sponsor is, is Earl Blumenauer out of Portland, Oregon. Uh, he also sits on Ways and Means. Um, on the Senate side, the lead sponsor is Ron Wyden, who is the ranking Democrat in Ways and Means, um, and uh, co-sponsored by Rand Paul. So we have two bipartisan pieces, and, and Michael Bennett from Colorado, mm -hmm. who also is on finance is also a co-sponsor on that bill. So we have two bipartisan pieces of legislation who are sponsored by, by legislators who sit on the committees where tax reform's coming out of. I don't think we have any realistic shot to pass 280 reform as a standalone piece of legislation, but what we're hoping is that yes, that this is something that could be incorporated into tax reform or some other vehicle that's gonna be coming through the Congress within the next year. Okay, great. Well, Neil Levine, thanks so much for joining us on this Middle Market Growth Conversation. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in the iTunes store and look out for our next episode in two weeks. 
In the meantime, visit middlemarketgrowth.org to read our cover profile of Live Well in the fall issue and other stories about fast-growing middle market companies and the people behind their success.